Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started. Is this thing? Yeah. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, so Richard is actually going. Richard is actually going to start us off here. Can everybody hear me? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I just have a continuing education uh, requirement of notice that I have to uh, uh, announce. First, you, you have to attend 80% of the program to receive credit. So that's, and then the, uh, Dr. Marsh, uh, a member of our planning committee, is a consultant for Gilead Biosciences. The planning committee member has his conflict resolved by altering his control over the content about the products or services of the commercial interest. No other planning committee members have a conflict of interest. Okay. Thank you, Richard. So is this thing doing anything? Yeah, it is. Okay. It's really hard to tell. Um, our speaker, who I'll introduce in a second, was just telling me that there's some discussion about changing terminology around conflict of interest and changing conflicts to something else, um, a little less judgmental. Um, anyway, so I'm delighted to have everyone here for our November AIDS seminar. Um, our speaker today is uh, Dr. Adam Lipworth is coming to us from, I was going to say coming to us from Boston, he is, though he was telling me he was actually in Woodstock for the weekend, uh, it was uh, your anniversary, uh, and uh, so took advantage of this trip to have a nice weekend in the North Country. And uh, so Adam uh, uh, started his uh, training at Yale, where he, he chose to go rather than Dartmouth, though he did visit Dartmouth, um, but you know, he made good anyway. Uh, and then after that went to uh, Penn for his MD, MD degree and then went uh, to Boston where he's been since, save for uh, uh, a brief trip over to London for some specialty training in uh, dermatology infectious disease. Um, so uh, Adam is an instructor at Harvard Med School at the Brigham and Women's uh, in the dermatology department. And, uh, is speaking us today on dermatology and the immune-compromised host. Uh, in Boston, Adam actually runs uh, a very unique clinic. It sounds, it's an infectious disease dermatology clinic. Um, there can't be many in the country. A few, yeah. So certainly has lots of experience in this uh, infectious disease dermatology clinic. Uh, acts as a referral uh, clinic for uh, infectious disease doctors, dermatologists, etc., cetera, uh, battling with challenging infectious, uh, I assume usually challenging infectious disease dermatology issues. Um, as mentioned, though, speaking to us today uh, on uh, dermatology and immune-compromised host, um, <clears throat> the, uh, Adam has, no, on my announcements, has no, uh, nothing to disclose in the way of conflict. There's no commercial support for today's activity. I think that's, Richard, all I have to announce, so let me hand it. Oh, and I, I should say, too, another connection. Adam has worked over thousands of miles with uh, our prized dermatology resident sitting in the back, Joni Ball, um, when she was in Botswana. Thank you so much. Uh, can you guys hear me? Is this close enough to the mic? <clears throat> Terrific. So we will be discussing awfully, we will be discussing uh, dermatology in the immune compromised host and, uh, host and while I will be talking a bit about some off-label use of medications, I have no conflicts to report. I am interested in the reform of the conflict of interest uh, uh, state right now. 
Um, we're going to be trying something a little bit different today. I actually would like you to take your cell phones out if you don't mind. Uh, we're going to be using a new, some new technology for um, audience response system. And you don't need an internet connection. You can do this all over SMS. But I'd like you to text to the number 22333, my last name, Lipworth, and that will enter you into these polls. And then there are going to be polls throughout. We'll get an anonymous audience response so you can answer without feeling judged. And uh, they make it a bit interactive. So take a second and do that if you can. And then there'll be a test poll coming up right after this. So 22333, Lipworth, any questions about it? Terrific. So this is the first poll. Once I press the play button, you'll be able to start. And if you can just give me your level of training here, med student, res resident, attending, allied health professional, patient, or other. Just text A, B, A, B, C, D, or E to that number. And it should come through. We'll give plenty of time for this one to get everybody organized. Thank you. Okay. Maybe we'll have a few more for the next one here. Last of the pre-test or pre-lecture polls. What is your level of comfort right now with HIV dermatology? <laughs> that was a very fast E. <laughs> And everybody else is too afraid to even, even give a response. There we go. All right, so anybody who doesn't have their phones out, if you're willing to, uh, feel free to participate. There are definitely more than four people here. So we are going to be talking about HIV in the skin. A few key principles first. When we think about HIV in the skin, we often first think about the opportunistic infections and the AIDS-defining malignancies that were common early in the epidemic, still are common in the developing world, um, and are not, they're not irrelevant here. They do still happen. They're worth knowing about. And as patients, as the patients with these opportunistic infections and AIDS-defining malignancies become more sparse, familiarity with them around these parts is, uh, is, is dwindling, and that's becoming a bigger issue. So these were common back then. These tend to follow the rules. They correlate with low CD4 counts. They improve with antiretrovirals, but sometimes only after going through a bit of IRIS, the immunoconstitution inflammatory syndrome, as we will talk about. In the age of heart in the developed world, we're seeing more of the conventional infections and malignancies, but unusual manifestations of them or different prevalences than we're used to. More drug reactions, more primary inflammatory conditions that are unique to HIV disease. They come from a diverse array of mechanisms. They do not necessarily correlate with CD4 count in the periphery, and they do not necessarily improve with antiretrovirals. We're gonna be talking about both today but we're gonna focus a bit more on what's relevant, most relevant here. We'll, talk, we'll, talk, we'll focus on what's new, what's misunderstood, and then what you can use in clinic today. So hopefully this will be clinically relevant immediately. Let's jump right in to case number one. I'm gonna dim the lights a little bit here. This is actually the first patient I met the very first time I ever worked in Southern Africa. This was uh, in South Africa and it was a little bit daunting as I walked into the room and saw this patient. He was 35 years old. He had progressive papules and nodules on his face for about two years. CD4 count about 250 on antiretrovirals at the time that I met him, but his nadir had been much lower a couple years earlier. You can see these nodules and papules all over his face, his scalp, top of his head. I'm going to give you a close-up here 
And for a moment, actually, I'm going to turn the lights down the rest of the way just for a sec so you can see it clearly. And I'm going to ask you an audience response system question in just a moment to try to get to the diagnosis. So look carefully at the features here. And the poll here, if you can take out your phones again, what's the diagnosis? Don't be afraid, it is anonymous. I'm going to pause the timer here to give a bit more time. It is still open, even though the timer's closed. Okay. So we got four for molluscum, one for histo. This is indeed molluscum. And can I ask maybe somebody who put molluscum, why did you say that? You mind? So there are, that's absolutely right, there are umbilications. So we have papules with umbilications, and as well, I'll show you in a moment, there are nodules with umbilications as well. But we're going to go into it in a moment, that not everything that umbilicates is molluscum. And so that was, the answer is indeed molluscum there, but it could have been the other three. And we're going to talk three of the others. Yes? I keep getting a thing that says your presenter has not opened a poll yet. Hmm. Was anybody else? Oh, you may have done that after I, after I left the slide, or before, possibly. We'll see when the next slide comes. When it's open, it shouldn't. Uh... Right, I'll, I'll guess a silly one to see if it's registered. Okay. Got it. <laughs> Let me know if it happens on the next one. Okay. So in HIV disease, severe molluscum is a sign of advanced immunosuppression, especially when it's giant, facial, or disseminated. It can occur with iris. It can persist after CD4 count stabilization, especially when they are giant. But it's important to note that not everything that umbilicates is molluscum. There is a differential, and the classic differential of umbilicated papules includes everything else that was on that, or includes three of the four alternatives on that question. The other three are all deep mycoses, cryptococcosis, histoplasmosis, penicilliosis, all on the list of WHO criteria for stage four HIV disease, markers of profound immunosuppression. But there's something in this picture here that actually can rule molluscum in. There's something else besides umbilications in this picture that can tell you that this is molluscum and not histo, crypto, or penicilliosis. So does anybody see anything else in this picture besides umbilications that tell you that this is not histo or crypto, for example? It's a tougher question here. I'll point out the umbilications for anybody who's having a tough time seeing them. And in the nodules as well, they're, they're studded with umbilications. If we look a little closer here, if we look at those umbilications, there's something else in this picture. Can anybody see anything else that you might be able to hang your hat on for a diagnosis? Specific feature. You notice how the base of those umbilications is white? White or yellow. That's the core of infected keratinocytes. If you take an 11 blade and you pierce the top of one of those umbilications and you tease out that core, you can actually smear it on a slide, and that, those are the classic Henderson-Patterson bodies or molluscum bodies. You can do a zinc prep on it and see those. But you don't need to do that because it has a classic look clinically as well. And so you'll see in a moment, histo and crypto, the other umbilicated papules, don't have those white cores at the base. If we look at a more typical case of facial molluscum, this is a patient with a CD4 count of about eight at the time, at the time this picture was taken. Uh, this is in Boston. We can see these umbilicated papules. And at the base, again, that whitish core, it's a little bit paler than the skin around. This patient was in Botswana. He was sent to me to rule out crypto or to, uh, to prove cryptococcosis. It was assumed that this was cryptococcosis of the face. But if you look closely, again, you can see these, those white cores. And I'll point them out more carefully in a moment. There's the white clinically. 
and then by epiluminescence, which is the dermatoscope that you may have seen the dermatologist carrying around. Uh, we have over here, the, you can see these white cores at the base of each umbilication, unique to molluscum. If we look at the others on the differential, like crypto, here is a plaque with an eccentric umbilication, no white core at the base. Same thing with histoplasmosis. We have a, a woman here with polymorphic papules all over her face. I'll show you some bigger pictures of it in a moment. But if we blow this one up on the temple, no white core. Histoplasmosis in particular can be quite polymorphic. Uh, you can see papules of all different sizes. Some uh, others are umbilicated, like on the cheek over there. Histo can do much more damage as well. Uh, this is a much more severe case that I saw in Durban, South Africa. Uh, widespread cutaneous necrotic ulcers, uh, ulcers of her nasal cartilage and mucosa, of her lip as well, autoamputation of a digit. She's got massive cervical adenopathy over here. There are actually very few things that can do all of that. If you think about the differential diagnosis of ulcerated uh, uh, plaques all over the body, disseminated throughout, autoamputation of a digit, destruction of mucosa, very few things actually cross all of those differentials well, but the deep mycoses, histo and crypto, are among them. <coughs> this is the most severe case of histo that I've seen. This was in South Africa as well. Uh, diffuse infiltration of the face, almost leonine faces, like a lion because of the diffuse infiltration. Uh, and unfortunately, he had diffuse infiltration of his internal organs as well. He walked into clinic like this, uh, but he unfortunately died several days later despite amphotericin uh, therapy. The first two patients did, uh, did well, actually. They both survived. So we're looking, we're talking here about the markers of profound immunosuppression. These should be considered AIDS unless proven otherwise. We've covered three of them so far, two of which are specifically delineated by the WHO as mucocutaneous criteria for stage four HIV disease. There are others that are not specifically delineated, but they are at least relatively specific for HIV disease. Uh, certainly not everything on this list is 100% AIDS unless proven, uh, AIDS, but like for example, herpes zoster scarring. Anybody who gets zoster can scar, but if you think about all the cases of zoster that you've seen, the vast majority of them have not scarred. So if you have somebody who does have a severe scar from zoster, think about whether it may have been a more severe case or an unusual case. Think about HIV, and I don't need to tell this group, uh, I do tell when I'm talking to dermatologists that the CDC has, has uh, recommended since 2006 that every single adult American be tested for HIV regardless of risk factors. Uh, U.S. Preventive Service Task Force followed suit in 2013. So we don't need a high threshold, and anything on this list should prompt an HIV test if, uh, if the status is unknown. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I will show just a couple. Up here we have a case of proximal subungual onychomycosis. So tinea unguum, it's a, an onychomycosis, it's a fungal infection of the nail. Proximal because it's close to the nail fold. Subungual because it's underneath the nail plate. If you scrape the top of the nail, it doesn't, it doesn't come off. It's not chalky at the top. This is not the most common form of onychomycosis in HIV disease, but it is the most specific for immune suppression. So if you see this in a patient, that's not a normal pattern of onychomycosis. Think about immunosuppression. Not just HIV, but actual AIDS. Widespread dermatophytosis. Obviously, anybody can get dermatophytosis, but when it's this widespread, think about HIV disease. Hmm. Um, sorry, oh, I see. Wrong button, I apologize. So, severe seborrheic dermatitis. Again, anybody, seborrheic dermatitis is very common, but it's much more common at all stages of HIV disease, uh, somewhere in the order, uh, the or, uh, an order of magnitude more common in any stage of HIV disease, and then as the CD4 count drops, it becomes still more common and also more severe. You can actually get erythrodermic 
So red and scaly all over, covering every inch of your, your cutaneous surface from seborrheic dermatitis, especially in immunosuppression. Capuchy sarcoma. Here we have the purple papules on the back of the palate. We've got a nodular stage capuchy over here and also up here in this leg, tumor stage capuchies. More typical red-brown plaques that we're used to seeing. And then massive lymphedema in a place that at least is endemic for capuchies uh, for HHV8 and where it's common, think about capuchies as a cause of massive lymphedema with elephantiasis. Capuchies is a little bit special on this list. I put some question marks here because it's not only on this list. We are going to see capuchies over and over again in this talk. So we'll come back to it in a little while. <coughs> so those are the comments, it's a whirlwind tour of the uh, markers of profound immunosuppression that were so common early in the epidemic and still are common in the developing world, which we still see here from time to time. In the age of heart, we see different things, as I mentioned, and we're going to focus the rest of the talk on that. So I'm going to show you a picture in a moment of the second case, a patient who, was, uh, who came in with severe rash and pain all over with a CD4 count of 260. Let's take a look here. Can you see it clearly enough, by the way, or do you need the lights down lower? Clear enough? Okay. About two weeks before this picture was taken, she had switched her antiretroviral regimen. She was not sure of the drug names. The previous drug had made her feel slow and sad, so she was changed to this one. And she had had no other drug changes in the last six months. I'm not going to ask you here what the diagnosis is. The diagnosis here is Stevens-Johnson syndrome. It's on the spectrum of toxic epidermal necrolysis. But if you can take your phones out, I am, your phones out, I am going to ask you which drug was most likely the cause of her Stevens-Johnson syndrome. Don't be afraid of being wrong. It's anonymous. And let me know if you get that message again. So the two people who voted, three people, are exactly right. This is nevirapine. Um, anybody want to say why they guessed nevirapine? From sorry, she'd been on private therapy and Sure. So, and, and so we'll talk about the, the risk factors for Stevens-Johnson syndrome with any drug, but I think you're, what you're, you're getting at also is that nevirapine epidemiologically is a very common cause of Stevens-Johnson syndrome in people who are prone. So nevirapine is, epidemiologically speaking, the most common of the antiretrovirals to cause Stevens-Johnson syndrome. The other clue here is a bit tougher to get to, but the previous drug made her feel slow and sad. Uh, I'll give you this one. The previous drug was, in her case, efavirenz uh, with the psych effects, and it was, it's very common, at least in Southern Africa, to switch from efavirenz to nevirapine, both NNRTIs, of course. We don't use nevirapine here very much anymore, but um, we do see it here on occasion. Um, and this, was a, this is a very common switch down in Southern Africa. Nevirapine, though, very long half-life and very common cause of Stevens-Johnson syndrome. What I think you were getting at, Dr. Marsh, also is her other risk factors for Stevens-Johnson syndrome, which she does have one. AIDS itself is a risk factor for Stevens-Johnson syndrome. In a large review, it carried a thousand-fold increased risk of SJS and TEN. That was not fully accounted for by the increased exposure to different drugs, so not just from the drug exposures. Recent study came out in 2014 that perhaps got at the mechanism uh, why patients with AIDS are at higher risk of Stevens-Johnson syndrome. The theory is that there is depletion of the skin-homing CD4 positive T regulatory cells, which causes unchecked effector action of the CD8 positive cells in the skin, predisposing to toxic epidermal necrolysis. So as the CD4 count drops, there is an increased predilection to TEN from all drugs, 
and nivirapine is a very common offender. All the cases I'm going to show you here were from nivirapine in either Botswana or South Africa. I've seen them in the States as well, not from nivirapine, but uh, among, in this patient population, it is more common. Nivirapine commonly used in pregnancy in Southern Africa, and uh, it's particularly devastating when there is Stevens-Johnson syndrome in a pregnant patient, although that pa particular patient did well. This is a busy slide. I don't expect everybody to, to read the whole thing. I'm not going to go over all of it. These are some of the highlighted, the more common or, or more important to know about, at least, of the derm-specific side effects of these drugs. When I'm speaking with dermatologists, I actually highlight one that's not highlighted here. I highlight Cushing's syndrome from ritonavir, uh, iatrogenic Cushing's in patients who are on ritonavir. So it will slow the metabolism of steroid quite significantly. And Frank Cushing's has been reported with uh, intraarticular injections, with systemic steroids, and with cutaneous injections of triamcinolone, and with high-potency topical steroids as well. So when I'm talking to dermatologists, at least, I stress this as a way that we can cause real harm if we're not sure of what we're doing with patients who are on protease inhibitor-based regimens. Not all drug reactions in HIV are, of course, from antiretrovirals. Fixed drug eruption is particularly common in this population. The most common offender is trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole or other sulfa drugs. It's called fixed because usually it's one lesion, although in HIV it's more likely to be multiple. And each time you're exposed to the drug, you get that lesion in the same exact spot over and over again. It's classically very round. It tends to affect the lips uh, and other mucosal membranes, uh, favorably, uh, it favors those areas more than other areas of the skin. It presents as either violaceous or brown edematous plaques, often very tender. It can look like cellulitis. They can blister in the middle. And then it comes back each time in the same location. Both of these patients here uh, had fixed drug eruption, multifocal fixed drug eruption from sulfa drugs. Lipodystrophy we're not seeing as often anymore. It's with the older protease inhibitors and NRTIs, but still does occur occasionally. Often, we'll see phototoxic or photoallergic drug reactions. Dress, very important to know about drug reaction with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms, most commonly seen with abacavir in the population that's HLA-B5701 positive. And then longitudinal melaninicchia and other uh, disorders of pigmentation, mostly with some of the older NRTIs like AZT. And then sort of drug reactions, ritonavir-induced Cushing syndrome and iris, which we'll talk more about later. Any questions before I move on to case number three? Move to case number three. I showed this picture a little bit earlier. Anybody remember what this picture was of, or have an idea? I knew what it is. Yeah. So this is a, this is a case of capuchies, not the way we're used to seeing it most commonly. This is tumor stage capuchies. These are not bullae. They look like they are, they're filled with fluid, but they're not. They're solid. If you look at the background, I'll show you in a moment. And you can see it in these pictures too. If I turn the lights down low, you can see that more classic purple or violaceous color in the background. Very dark. Uh, purple. And um, this is a patient with, uh, in South Africa, 44 years old, low CD4 count, HIV positive. Here you can see that purplish color in the background, maybe a little bit better. It's tough with the lights, I think, right there. Uh, that, I think if you saw just that picture, it might have actually been easier to tell capuchies than if you see the 20,000-foot view. What I did tell you about this patient is that these were rapidly progressive over about a two-month period. And he had, that, he had started heart about three months earlier, his antiretrovirals about three months earlier. This is a case of Capuchis presenting as part of IRIS, the Immune Reconstitution Inflammatory Syndrome. It is on the list of the most commonly reported underlying conditions. IRIS, I don't need to stress too much with this group. I think you know it probably better than, uh, than 
certainly the dermatologist I speak to him better than me. Uh, this is a worsening or an unmasking of, the pre, of a pre-existing disease process with immune recovery from antiretroviral therapy. To break it apart a little bit, though, worsening or unmasking. So worsening, take a leg that maybe has capuchies but not severe, give antiretrovirals, becomes much more severe. And that's termed paradoxical iris because if you didn't know about iris, it would be paradoxical that they would be getting worse when they should be getting better. Unmasking is when you have a normal leg, let's just say here, you give antiretrovirals and it becomes uh, affected with capuchies. I, I noticed that I was going through, when I was making this talk, I was going through my slides and I have about, mass about 25,000 clinical images and I realized I could not find one of a normal leg. So uh, I had to go to the internet. Uh, to my knowledge, that person does not have capuchies. Uh, so is it really important to know about cutaneous forms of iris? If we look at those commonly reported underlying conditions, if you look carefully at that list, you'll notice that most of them either can or primarily are cutaneous diseases. They either can be or primarily are cutaneous diseases. In fact, about 50% of iris events, in some series more than 50%, are dermatologic, and often they present with atypical morphology and atypical histology, so very difficult to diagnose. That's the most commonly reported underlying conditions. There are a host of others that are not reported for various reasons, like this patient here with eosinophilic folliculitis, which for some reason is not reported as a form of iris in most of the literature. It's its own entity, even though to me, this is the perfect example of iris, that the number one risk factor is immune reconstitution. There are others that are not reported, most of which are cutaneous because they're lumped under rash in the literature. And so there are many that are just not reported, but you see these all the time getting worse after starting antiretrovirals. And so when you look at this list now, almost everything here is highlighted in yellow, and you can see how common these conditions are in iris as part of iris. But even so, most of these conditions, almost anything you see on the skin can get worse after starting antiretrovirals, so we're likely to see it from time to time. We diagnose it and treat it the same way, right? So why still do we need to know that it's part of iris? To get at that, I'm going to ask if anybody remembers this picture from a little further behind in the talk. Remember this one? This is the molluscum case in Boston. 34-year-old woman. She had comorbid hepatitis C and cirrhosis. CD4 count consistently less than 20. We had a very tough time uh, getting her above that. And here are her molluscum. What I didn't tell you about her is that these would reappear about one to two months after a reinitiation of her antiretrovirals almost every time. Now, why molluscum can present as part of iris, I really don't know. I, I can't explain it. It's not inflammatory. And yet, you see this, and it is reported in the literature that molluscum will flare consistently in some patients after starting antiretrovirals. So, in some ways, this is a good thing. and It's a sign of adherence, maybe. It seems pretty simple, uh, as long as you can get her to take her antiretrovirals, because she always assumed that these, that these molluscum papules would come out as a side effect of the drug. Uh, so she would often stop her antiretrovirals after they appeared. Unfortunately, it wasn't so simple. When she was developing those papules on her face, she also would develop this rash on the bottom of her feet, painful uh, erosions and blisters, scaly plaques. She wouldn't just develop molluscum, she would develop edema of her face at the same time often. She developed these red-brown plaques, very well demarcated, all over her skin. Biopsies of these, over and over again, by the way, me and multiple other dermatologists would take bi biopsies, they not only did not show anything specific, they showed different nonspecific patterns every time we, we biopsied her. The same types of lesions sometimes would be spongi spongiosis, which is a sign of eczema. Sometimes they would show a lichenoid infiltrate. It was different every time. She developed this ulcer on her scalp, consistently HSV negative on cultures and DFA, CMV negative as well on cultures. 
these ulcers all over her buttocks. Again, HSV and CMV negative. If you look at the tips of her toes, it's not all those scaly plaques and vesicles that you see on the soles. She developed these purpuric uh, patches on the tips of her toes that almost look like ischemic disease, like you would see in perniosis. So is this all iris? What are the underlying conditions? Are some of these or all of them adverse drug reactions, direct, direct adverse drug reactions, not from her immune system reconstituting? Are they new infections? Maybe they're new infections or worsening infections because she's not being adherent with her antiretrovirals, just the opposite in some ways of iris. I think of iris as a relatively simple model. This is the model that's in my head, at least for iris, where we have, we give highly active antiretroviral therapy, you get boost the immune response, and then a pathogen that had been there before presents with a new or different or changing symptom or sign. But in reality, you can get that same symptom or sign from a worsening of the pathogen. For example, if you're not taking your antiretrovirals, or from a new pathogen, or a new non-pathogen, a new, a new antigen from an autoimmune disease, for example. Or maybe a direct drug effect, including from the antiretrovirals themselves. And remember, these patients are not generally on one drug or only on, a highly anti, uh, uh, only on antiretrovirals. They're on many other therapies at the same time. And now you can see this model start to get really messy. Iris is just one of the many ways to explain that symptom out of this whole messy chart. And these patients don't present with one symptom when their CD4 count is eight and they're slowly reconstituting. They're presenting like our patient that I just showed you with multiple symptoms, each with its own messy chart. And you can see now how complicated Iris gets all of a sudden from a simple definition. So yes, we treat the underlying condition and the symptoms when you can identify them and when you can treat them. And in dermatology, that's really all we do. We're not gonna be messing with the antiretrovirals. We're gonna be referring to you guys to mess with the antiretrovirals. We're rarely going to be doing long courses, at least, of systemic steroids in this patient population without the ID doc or HIV provider being very closely involved. We're gonna be treating the underlying symptoms. But the key step to management is simply making the diagnosis. If you can diagnose that their problem is related to iris, just doing that alone, you can avoid unnecessary tests. You can avoid unnecessary antiretroviral adjustments or termination. You can identify often a systemic disease if you can actually make the formal cutaneous diagnosis. Sometimes you can identify an underlying disease. And there's a lot of good to be done just by making that diagnosis. And the point here is that these conditions don't present typically, morphologically or histologically. They can be very difficult to diagnose. But if you think of it, if you, if you are the one that thinks of that diagnosis, you can do a lot of good just by thinking of it. And it's unlikely anybody else will. These are the kinds of things where patients will go for weeks or months and with everybody making diagnoses and not considering the possibility that iris is involved. And, and you'll see the, the, the course of their treatment changes immediately as soon as somebody realizes this is iris. So consider it in any unusual presentation in the months after initiation of antiretrovirals. Any questions about that? Yeah. So in the end, uh, the woman with the molestum, yeah. was that attributed to iris? So she, some of it was, and some of it we never figured out. So the molestum was one that was very consistent. Every time she went on her antiretrovirals, her molestum would flare, and it was easier to call that iris. Um, we came to the conclusion that the red-brown plaques most likely were actually an unusual fixed drug eruption. Uh, so that was probably not iris. And much of the rest remained a mystery, and she unfortunately died um, during one of these events. She actually had other uh, complications as well, not related to her skin, um, and we never got completely to the bottom of it. But it was still the, compl the complex nature of her presentation um, is really enough to show the point that, uh, that it, uh, almost certainly some of those were part of iris, but the fact that we had such difficulty telling the difference between what was iris and what was not is really the point. That make sense?
So case number four, this is in Boston, 47-year-old woman, long-standing anti HIV, on antiretroviral, CD4 count at 650 in the 650s. Nader was unknown many years before in Uganda when she lived there. She'd immigrated to America uh, about a decade ago. Um, she had genital ulcers since 1999. They were initially sporadic and responded to acyclovir. They were classic HSV ulcers by all accounts, including hers, and she was a nurse. But then in 2007, something changed. She developed these eroded vegetative nodules that were persistent despite acyclovir and valcyclovir. She had been given empiric doxycycline in case this was LGV, lymphogranuloma venereum. She had been given empiric penicillin in case this was an unusual syphilis. She had, been, had a LEAP procedure. It's found to have cervical intraepithelial neoplasm, stage two, with HPV changes. They were, this was excised multiple times, including a partial vulvectomy, every time it recurred rapidly afterwards. Cultures were consistently negative, broad spectrum, broad, broad cultures. Histology was nonspecific. It showed acute and chronic inflammation with plasma cells, which is common in the genital mucosa uh, and ulceration. She did have viral cytopathic changes and her HSV stains were positive. This was largely ignored because it was known that she had H HSV uh, previous, and this was thought not to be her HSV disease, but she had HSV as an innocent bystander, it was thought, uh, and so they thought this couldn't be HSV disease, and we'll see whether that's right or wrong in a moment. Uh, and then she had negative other stains there. You can see Gram stain, GMS, AFB, and CMV stains. So what are we dealing with here? And this, there will be an audience response system question here. Um, I'll pause it if there's not enough time, but is this HPV disease of some unusual sort? Is this an unusual HSV variant? Is this an unusual lymphogranuloma venereum, malacoplakia, granuloma inguinale? Only one brave soul. So I won't uh, ask who that person was, but this, uh, this is a very tough, that was a very tough question. And this actually is a, a case of HSV vegetans, which is a variant of chronic HSV. And it's very rare in the literature, but I suspect it is not nearly as rare in real life. And I'll ask in a moment if anybody has seen it. Uh, it's unusual that this could be chronic HSV. Chronic HSV was on that list in the beginning of the talk of the WHO criteria for stage four HIV disease. It's a marker of profound immunosuppression if you have an HSV lesion lasting more than a month at a time. And she's not profoundly immunosuppressed. CD4 count in the 650s, she's been doing well for years. Verrucous HSV, or HSV vegetans, is a variant that happens primarily, at least in the literature, in the reports in the literature, in patients who have long-standing CD4 count stabilization, uh, often with a cyclovir-resistant HSV. And it's really not known why some patients who are co-infected with HSV and HIV get this pattern, whereas most do not. Has anybody seen this or think they may have seen this? I've been showing this case now for about a year and a half uh, at various talks, and Oftentimes, there are one or two people in the audience who've seen it. And if it's as rare as you would expect from the literature, that wouldn't be the case. Uh, so I suspect this is actually more common and probably underdiagnosed because people don't realize that HSV can present this way. Uh, I've actually seen a couple cases now. Yeah? So why were the culture negative for HSV? So they often are negative. We were able to get a positive culture with a deep biopsy. Um, most of the cultures were done the typical way that HSV cultures are done with a, a swab or scraping of the surface. And we don't know why, but in the literature as well, it's, it's harder to find this in the cultures because most of what you're seeing, probably because most of what you're seeing on the surface is an inflammatory response to the HSV and it's not actually at the surface, but that's speculation. I can't tell you that for sure. But uh, it's, it, what I can tell you in, in the literature is that the cultures are more difficult to get. They're more often negative until you take a deeper biopsy. Yeah. With HSV, you mean, or? 
it's, it's a reasonable thought. If, uh, so plasmacytosis would be a reasonable thought if, if we couldn't isolate a cause. And I'll show you how we know for sure that this is what she had in a moment. But it's, that's a reasonable thought as well. So the key thing on this slide, though, is that it can occur at high CD4 counts. I've asked that question here already. So it can occur at high CD4 counts, and that's what this, uh, we're going to talk about for the remainder of this talk. The HIV dermatosis is relatively resistant to CD4 count recovery. These are the things that we are not only seeing more of now, but we will likely see increasingly going forward. Many of the entities on this list are increasing in prevalence, not just relative to the other dermatoses that we've talked about, but actually in absolute terms as well, as our patients are living longer and these do not go away with, with improved CD4 counts. But let's take a quick moment to review where we are. We talked about the markers of profound immunosuppression, which you can think of as problems from a lack of therapy. We talked about cutaneous adverse drug reactions, problems from therapy itself. We talked about iris, problems from recovery in some ways. And now we're talking about HIV dermatoses resistant to CD4 count recovery or problems despite recovery. Now, this particular patient did indeed have, we were able to culture out her HSV, and it was acyclovir-resistant. Um, there are a number of things you can do for acyclovir-resistant HSV. Usually the mechanism is thymidine kinase deficiency, and it's often a relative deficiency. So the first thing you can actually try is very high dose of the typical antivirals, of the, vir the antivirals that require thymidine kinase to work. So you can give high-dose valacyclovir, IV acyclovir in high dose, they will often work even when you're dealing with, an, with a, 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 a resistant HSV. When that fails, you need to go to the thymidine kinase independent antivirals like Foscarnet or Sodafovir, or you can use local immune stimulants, which are often forgotten. So, so Imiquimod, actually. Aldara is the brand name. There actually is another one out now as well, but Imiquimod, uh, which is FDA approved for uh, skin cancers, actinic keratoses, genital warts, uh, you can use on this as well to stimulate the immune system uh, against the HSV. In her case, we actually compounded topical sodafovir. Sodafovir, of course, usually an IV drug. Uh, very expensive. I'm not advocating for its common use, but you can compound it in an ointment. We did 1% ointment once per day. Before therapy, she had been soaking through 16 pads per day for the prior five years. With one week of therapy, she was down to one pad a day, and four weeks later, down to none, and she actually has not recurred since in almost two years. So it's, it was a remarkable, remarkable response to topical sodafovir 1%. Uh, there are lots of new entities coming out on the horizon for acyclovir-resistant HSV, just to be aware of. Um, there are a couple articles uh, detailing them in the last year or so. Sodafovir as a topical drug uh, works on HPV as well. It's a, it's a broad-spectrum antiviral for, H, for uh, DNA viruses. Again, not advocating for its common use, but in the right patient, it can be extremely useful. Uh, this patient had a wart on his heel, or a mosaic wart, a collection of warts that I had been really struggling with for about a year and a half by the time I took these pictures. Uh, nothing worked on these. I can go over at some point if you want what I did for him, but we tried about 20 different therapies very aggressively. Nothing worked. I then gave him the compounded topical sodafovir 5% twice a day, so much higher strength and more frequent than the patient on the genitals. Uh, and salicylic acid compounded, 60% salicylic acid, which if you ever do, just be careful, only a very small surface area, or you can actually cause salicylate toxicity, uh, aspirin toxicity. So it's for a small surface area only. He came back a few weeks later, and everything had melted away. And I said, wow, that combination really worked well for you. And he said, no, he never got the salicylic acid because it was a $30 copay. And, uh, and so this was actually Sidofovir by itself, uh, topically 5%. Uh, HPV disease is a huge talk in and of itself. We're not going to go into depth about it, uh, many different manifestations, but I'm going to highlight two things 
And I'm sorry this got cut off a little bit, but there's an E before that P there. This is uh, HIV-associated epidermodysplasia verusiformis. It's a fairly obscure diagnosis previously, at least, in dermatology. Dermatologists learn about this as a genetic disease caused by a mutation in an ever one or ever two gene. It causes a predisposition to the beta subtypes of HPV, five, eight, and others. And uh, children who get this by the time they're in their 30s will often get squamous cell carcinomas, uh, some of which are very aggressive uh, in sun-exposed areas. We were seeing these patients with these little flat wart-like lesions all over them, around the mouth, around the, sometimes on the whole trunk and extremities. Sometimes other siblings had it as well. HIV positive in southern Africa. It looked just like epidermodysplasia verusiformis, but we didn't know if that's what it was or if these were classic flat warts, which are usually different subtypes of HPV, 3 and 10 most commonly. Uh, in 2012, two different groups simultaneously did studies on these kids and found that indeed they do have the beta subtypes of HPV. And this is an acquired variant of epidermodysplasia verusiformis. And we've seen it actually in Boston as well. Again, it's one of those things that's newly described, so worth knowing about, probably more common than we give it credit for uh, and associated with immunosuppression. Uh, difficult to treat. It's treated with uh, topical retinoids, with uh, exfoliant uh, medications uh, and uh, keratolytics, so things like glycolic acid, and you hope that they can clear the virus on their own as their immune system reconstitutes. The other thing I will highlight about HPV are HPV-related malignancies. So this picture at the top left here is a periungal squame, squamous cell carcinoma in situ, and then we have a verrucous carcinoma on the lower left. The relative risk of HPV-induced malignancy in HIV is extremely high compared to the seronegative population's relative risk, as you can see there on the lower right. And often these diseases can mimic the precursor disease or the benign variant of the disease. So the patient here with the fingertip that you can see had been treated as a wart for about two years by the time I met him. We did a biopsy, he was a squame in situ, and he ultimately went for Mohs there, Mohs surgery to remove the squame. When we think Classically, the, 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 the malignancies that come to mind most readily, I would say, at least for myself and maybe for you, when I think about AIDS and, and, uh, and, and cutaneous malignancies or mucous membrane malignancies or capuchies, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and cervical cancer, all of which are CDC uh, AIDS-defining malignancies. Much more now and going forward in the future, we are going to be seeing these HPV-associated malignancies uh, that the risk of these does not decrease significantly with the uh, rise in CD4 count or at least enough to uh, outweigh the number of patients we have living with elevated CD4 counts as they age. So we are going to be seeing more and more of these as time goes on. Another one that's very important to mention is what this patient has here. She kept coming into the emergency room and was diagnosed with recurrent cellulitis with lymphangitis. And indeed, she does have lymphangitis there that you can see. But this was not, uh, this was not infectious, actually. There was no tenderness over that that plaque, that, that nodule, actually, you can see there on her wrist. There was no tenderness over the lymphangitis. She didn't have a fever. Any idea what else can cause lymphangitis besides an infection? That might be particularly important in this population. So this is a, a severe insect hypersensitivities. We see it in our, leuke our chronic leukemia patients and in our HIV patients even when their CD4 counts are, are, are elevated. They can often has, have dramatic bullous reactions to uh, insects, to various different insects. They can have lymphangitis that's sterile. And uh, we actually, I, when I met her a couple days after this last emergency room visit, uh, we injected her with triamcinolone and uh, uh, melted away. And each time she gets a new bed bug bite, we bring her in and do that. And, and obviously, we work with her social worker and landlord to try to get her in a better housing situation. But these were all bed bug bites. 
you can see severe arachnid hypersensitivities as well, like in this patient with scubetic nodules on the penis, and then uh, you can see these burrows over here on the wrist, these little squiggly white lines, which I'll blow up for you in a moment here. So this was a severe case of scabies. If we look more closely, I've highlighted them in yellow there. Those are the burrows, those white lines. The scabies might will actually walk from one end of it, and then it is at the other end. So this was the path these two scabies mites took. And if you look closely at the end of those burrows there, you can see a little fleck of brown. And if you blow that up even more, well, that's, that's very blown up with a microscope. That actually is this patient. Um, just one of the scabies mites twice, but uh, it's not two different scabies mites. But if you have a magnifying glass in clinic, you can actually see what's been described as the delta wing sign of scabies. This works best with epiluminescence, with the dermatoscope that, der that dermatologists carry, but you can see it with the microscope as well. It's called the delta wing sign because it looks to somebody like a triangular delta wing aircraft, which uh, if you squint, you can kind of see the delta wing and the contrail behind it. That's, the, uh, that's how it got its name. And it's a very nice uh, method of diagnosing scabies if you look at the, if you can find a burrow. Uh, I will tell you that since this was described, I have, at least personally, never had a scraping that was positive where I did not foresee this, and I've also never had a scraping that was negative where I did see this. So at least in my hands, they're equal sensitivity and specificity for whatever that's worth. The mineral oil prep and the delta wing sign. Uh, just a picture here, this is the scabies mite over here, the scabella, the, uh, this is the, the feces of the scabies mite over here, and then an egg over here. And we actually came back to the microscope, I wanted to show some of the med students what a scabies might look so, like, and I hope this works. Came back to the microscope about an hour, uh, about four hours actually after we took, uh, after we first took those pictures, and if this works, I will be show you a little video. Ah, let me try one more thing here. Let me get, uh, hmm, uh-oh, sorry guys, video has crashed the program. So, Okay, we're there. I'll try one more way here. Let's see if this works. Nope, no Windows Media Player, that's why, sorry. So you'll have to trust me that scabies mites can live in mineral oil for at least four hours. Uh, we, could, we caught it dancing still about four hours later. <laughs> uh, so brief review, and then I'm going to have one bonus case because uh, we have a few minutes uh, more. But we've talked today about the markers of profound immunosuppression, adverse drug reactions in HIV, iris, and then the HIV dermatoses that are relatively resistant to CD4 count recovery. Not all of them, but a, some of the important ones or uh, poorly understood ones. Lack of therapy, drug reactions from therapy, iris from recovery, and HIV dermatoses resistant to CD4 count recovery despite recovery. I would like to go through this bonus case because I think it actually is something potentially important in the coming years. Uh, a mysterious pattern of an old disease. It's a 42-year-old man I met in Boston. He had papules on his right foot, excellent antiretroviral adherence, CD4 count at the time of 435, his nadir was 291, so he was never very low. I'll give you the diagnosis here. This actually was a case of Capuchin sarcoma presenting at high CD4 count. Bless you. And you can see these violaceous papules here, like classic color. So is this iris? We saw the capuchins can come out as part of iris. Not very likely. Hmm. I think it crashed again. Oh, just on my screen. There we go. So not very likely to be iris because he's still making these 30 months after commencing, commencing antiretroviral therapy. And he's had long-standing CD4 count. He never had a particularly low nadir, which is a risk factor for iris. So doesn't fit well with iris. And I'll tell you that since I put this slide in, it's been another six months or eight months now, and he still occasionally will make a new lesion. 
Uh, he's made, I think, one um, in that, in that eight-month period or so, unless I'm getting my dates a little bit off, so maybe two. Capri sarcoma in well-controlled HIV, presenting in well-controlled HIV, has been reported. First report was in 1999, and there was a case series in 2007. There are multiple scattered reports since then. We're not talking here about iris. We're not talking about persistence of capuchies that developed when the immune system was poor. We're talking about development of capuchies anew once, an immune, uh, once the immune system has already nicely reconstituted. The, path the pathophysiology is not known, but there is a growing body of literature that this may be due to immunosenescence, to aging of the premature aging of certain parts of the immune system, likely something to do with NK cells and a subset of the CD4 positive cells. Uh, Capuchis uh, was first described by Maurice Capuchy in the 1870s in Austria, obviously not in HIV patients, but in elderly Mediterranean Ashkenazi Jewish or Italian men, on their feet, slow-growing, very indolent malignancy, only in the elderly. The thinking here is that HIV might be causing premature immunosenescence, premature aging of parts of the immune system, making a 40 or 50-year-old long-standing HIV patient with good control have these parts of the immune system similar to the 80-year-olds that, that Capuchy was describing in the 1870s and that we still do see today. There is a nice review in 2014, and I'm going to quote one part of it in full, just one sentence here, where the author said, if these new Capuchy's forms are effectively linked to a senescence phenomenon, we could observe a new epidemic corresponding to the aging of a population with a high HHV prevalence and long HIV exposure. I've seen a number of these cases now, and this is another one where I've raised to the audience and other people have seen it too. Have you guys, has anybody here seen HIV, seen capuchies develop, especially in indolent form, in a patient with long-standing, well-controlled HIV? You've seen, so? Um, and do, would you like to say anything about it? Have you seen, was it one case? Have you seen multiple? Was it like this one different? African men? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Do you happen to know if he was West African or, or from somewhere else in Africa? Okay. So it would be interesting to talk about it, but uh, there's also an endemic form of capuchies in West Africa that's also H HIV independent. Um, and, uh, uh, and then also HHV is far more prevalent in, various po in, in, in all populations in Southern Africa than it is in, uh, in the U.S. where it's limited mostly to men of sex with men. Got it. Interesting. Um, well, I, I, I do suspect that we may be on the cusp of, a, of, of seeing capuchies in a new light. I, I think it's worth at least keeping it on your radar in patients that you may not otherwise expect it. The final twist in the story, though, oh, and for, for that patient, by the way, we chose with some fear to do nothing. We watched it, and each spot that he gets disappears on its own a few months later, and then he gets a new one uh, occasionally, and then it goes away. But we have not actually treated it even locally, uh, those particular ones. But all of those nodules and papules went away on their own. Certainly, if they stop following that trend, and we have, we have uh, ID and uh, oncology involved with them as well, if that, if that, uh, uh, that pattern reverses trend, we're going to change our therapy for him as well, of course. Yeah? His case was, was purely cutaneous as far as we could tell. So he had nothing in the mouth, although we actually did get scoped anyway above and below because we were watching it. I don't know if he necessarily needed to, to get scoped for it with nothing in the mouth uh, and no, no GI bleeding. But um, on scope, at least, there was nothing in the GI tract. He has not had a bronch or anything like that. He did have an x-ray that was negative, but um, it's only so sensitive. Um, the, well, the ones that I've mentioned there are all reported, are all cutaneous cases, and they were all indolent. Um, it's a good question. I don't know for sure that there are no reported cases of primary pulmonary or primary GI 
Capuchies, that's a good question. Uh, I didn't come across that, but I wasn't looking for that specifically. It's a very good question. Final twist is a patient that I follow in Boston also, who came in with these rapidly growing nodules on his nose. He was an electrician, uh, he's otherwise healthy except for some chronic kidney disease from obstructive neuro neuropathy in 2009. He had these rapidly growing nodules that were start starting to bleed, but otherwise completely healthy. On biopsy, these were capuchies as well, HHV8 positive. He was HIV negative, normal CBC, CD4 count of 663, no history of abnormal infections, no risk factors at all that we could identify for any form of capuchies, whether it be HIV-associated, iatrogenic, classic, endemic, we couldn't find anything. He had normal lymphocyte response to antigen and mitogen. Uh, there's one test still pending, his NK cell function assay um, is a complicated test to get and he's missed a couple appointments for it. Uh, since July of 2014, he's developed five new rapidly growing nodules on his nose uh, or around his nose, so on his face. This is not the classic capuchies that Maurice Capuchie described. This is not the indolent, slow-growing nodules. These are rapidly growing nodules on the face, which you really don't see very often even in AIDS-associated capuchies. This is the more, more aggressive forms of capuchies that you would see even in AIDS. And we do not know what's going on with him. We don't know yet why he has these rapidly growing capuchies nodules on his face. He might just be unlucky. Maybe there's an occult risk factor that we haven't identified yet. Maybe a novel risk factor that hasn't been described yet. Maybe a new HHVH strain. Maybe that the occult risk factor is that NK assay, that function, NK function assay. Maybe he does have abnormal NK cells and we just haven't identified it yet. But that's another one. I've, I've spoken to a couple folks. So Toby Maurer in, uh, is an uh, HIV dermatologist in um, uh, San Francisco at UCSF. She's seen a case like this. Art Savedra is a colleague of mine at MGH. He's seen one case of this as well, and we don't know what's going on. So I bring this now to all my talks to see if anybody else has ideas or if anybody's seen a case like this, or at least to keep something on your radar uh, about if you see patients like this in the future, maybe let us know and we'll uh, put our heads together. So I'm gonna leave you with that, and if anybody has ideas or questions, please uh, let me know. Thank you very much for your attention today. Happy to take questions or, or thoughts on any of these cases. Are we positive that his father is not a Mediterranean descent? Are we sure of his parents? Yeah, he thinks that he has one grandmother who he thinks may I would be thinking most about the, the West African endemic form um, uh, of it, and, and he has no risk factors for that either. No. And this, he, uh, he has been very closely followed by oncology, by oncology as well, and by immunology uh, doing this, uh, the uh, immune uh, deficiency workup. Um, only cutaneously pop up. We actually have been uh, ED and seeing this, so we, we shave them off burn the base, they go away, they, uh, nothing, nothing has come back once we've treated it. And uh, we've prescribed him a Miquimod, which he has not picked up in over a year, multiple different times. We've also, I, just, I saw him actually last week, and um, I gave him a script for both Miquimod and Alitretinoin gel, which is FDA approved for Capuchis, and I'm um, hoping that one of them will be covered in, in less of a barrier for him to pick up. Um, but he actually is quite happy with his regimen of coming to us whenever he gets a new one, and we take care of that one, but I'm very nervous for him. Any other questions? 
Thank you very much for your attention. Oh, yeah. oh, yes. Do you think that the general government politics of the world are um, ready for your spectrum of disease that you're talking about here? Well, this particular patient, I, I, you know, I, I, they'll, they'll make the diagnosis because this is this is, it'd be hard for this person to get out of a dermatologist clinic without getting a biopsy. I would say, I would hope. Um, yeah, and, and so the diagnosis hopefully will 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 be made by the pathologist, uh, if, if not made by the dermatologist. The previous patient with the indolent capuchies, I think, is something that we as dermatologists need to become familiar with. Uh, I, I think there's a good chance we're going to be seeing more of that, and I think. Um, my main concern with dermatologists, and what I actually stress to dermatologists when I'm giving this talk, my main concern is overtreatment. Um, and we don't really know where the line is, how aggressively we should be treating those patients. But uh, I stress what I've done with that one patient, not because I know that I'm right, that I, that I know that doing nothing was the right thing to do, but to at least make sure they know that that's an option or that if they go a step above that, it's to go one step or two steps above it, not to get them doxel uh, you know, or, or, or something very aggressive, which is probably going to turn out not to be the right thing to do for that population. So my, my main concern is over-treatment, I'd say. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.